The following program contains explicit material and isn't suitable for younger listeners. Welcome to Focus on the Family with Jim Daly. I'm John Fuller, and our guest today is the author of such classic Christian songs as We Will Worship the Lamb of Glory, and Thank You, Lord, and You Are My All in All. He's Dennis Jernigan, and he's here with us today to share his own personal story of transformation in the hands of a loving God. Uh, John, Dennis has quite a story to tell. I'm looking forward to hearing it, and we're going to get to it right away. But he grew up in a farming community in eastern Oklahoma. Uh, he's been married uh, more than 30 years to Melinda, his bride. And I love this fact. Dennis has written thousands of worship songs, not just dozens or hundreds, but thousands of worship songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dennis, let me first welcome you to Focus on the Family. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I love being here. It is great to have you. And how did the Lord pack in so much talent into one person? Mm. How do you come up with thousands <laughs> of worship songs? When the fire gets hot, stuff comes <laughs> out. Good stuff. Well, that's a good point. Mm. Um, you know, someone once said to me, trust people that walk with a limp. That's, that's And uh, in brokenness, yeah. the Lord can do so much with a broken spirit, huh? Mm. Yeah, well, I, I immediately think of the fragrance of myrrh. Myrrh comes from a bush that has to be cut, and the, the drops of rosin that come out are called tears. You still don't have the beautiful fragrance yet. Those tears are allowed to harden, then they're crushed, and that's when you have the fragrance. Yeah. Huh. With the crushing, with the fire, with the hardships of life, with the suffering, with whatever, uh, I've discovered that God wastes none of that. And that's why I love to tell my story, mm -hmm. just because I know that he's going to turn some lights on for some other people out there. Dennis, in talking about that pain, we got mm -hmm. to paint a picture for the listener sure. um, because we haven't really said what it is you struggled with. And it's a controversial one in sure. the culture today, uh, homosexuality. Mm -hmm. um, let's start back when you were a, a little boy. What happened to you that set you mm -hmm. on a path of destruction? Well, several things came together. I call it the perfect storm. Um, I was very artistic as a child. Uh, I could hear a song on the radio by the time I'm five or six years old and sit down at the piano and pick out the melody. Huh. If you were sad, I would be sad. If you were happy, I would be happy. I, I was wired to sense things emotionally. And I know now that was for use for the Lord. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know it then. All I so knew you was, were a feeler. Yes, very much so. In fact, uh, get to first grade and the other boys find out I play the piano and they start calling me sissy and girl and fag and queer by junior high especially uh, uh, but at, at the age of five a very profound incident took place in my life i was in a public restroom and uh, i did my business turned around there was a man with his pants down exposing himself to me wanting me to touch him and i wouldn't do it i ran that scared me so badly i, I had full intentions of telling my mom and dad and I stopped short, though, just before I got to my mom, because I thought, I began thinking these thoughts, what's wrong with me? Why would that man think he could do that to me? What is wrong with me that would cause him to respond that way to me? And I've had people argue with me and say that wouldn't, a five-year-old would never think that way. Guys, I've never forgotten. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. Well, it's a little audacious that somebody would even say they could think differently from how you were thinking. Sure. You, again, you were the only one that knew how you were That's thinking. Right. I think the other aspect of that, Dennis, and we'll continue with sure. the story, but I see that um, in people I know, the sensitive spirit. Mm -hmm. um, I know women that maybe had 
um, some sexual abuse in their background. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't extreme what many people rationalize as, well, how would that affect you in that way? But with sensitive spirits, um, those moments are profoundly impacting and very deep. To other people, it may not impact them quite the same way. Is that fair? That's very fair. I, I, like I said earlier, I, if you felt a certain way, I was empathetic with you. And uh, I know now those were gifts from the Lord for use in his kingdom, for his purposes. But when I was a kid, I discovered very quickly that um, the men would approve of me if I performed well on the athletic field which is kind of a, a twist and turn from the typical story. Uh, I needed my dad's affirmation. I wanted his affection. I wanted his approval. The only time I felt like my dad ever spoke to me, and this is so indicative of how the enemy gets us so self-focused that all we can see is ourselves and our own needs and our own wants and our own desires, and that's where I was. I discovered that when I got that first hit on the baseball field, my dad went nuts mm. in a good way. Not just my dad, but all the men. And I got those pats on the back and I thought, wow, if I perform, I didn't put it in these terms, but I thought to myself, if I perform well on the ball field, I'm loved. Mm. So that, that transcended every aspect of my life to the point where scholastically, artistically, uh, in the athletic realm, I, I had to be the best at everything. Let me ask you in the background of that, your dad's uh, a worship leader and your mom a Sunday school teacher mm -hmm, in a mm -hmm. small town again in yes, Oklahoma. Um, as that boy later, after five years old, maybe eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, mm -hmm. what was happening to you in terms of your, your sexual awareness? What, what was happening in that space? Well, experimentation with other boys, especially older boys, uh, I, uh, even though it was detestable to me at the time, at first, um, the boys, the older boys made me feel good about myself. If I pleased them, I felt good about myself. Mm. So I did whatever, and I'm very ashamed of that to this day, but thank the Lord he dealt with even my shame, but... Um, what hole, and you, you allude to it, but I want sure. to be very clear with it, um, that void in your heart that you're trying to fill. Yeah, I wanted my dad's affection. I needed him. He never told me he loved me until after I was married. The, the only time I felt like my dad ever spoke to me was when he needed me to do something for him or if he was disciplining me. So that's exactly what I thought of God. Mm -hmm. So I had this emptiness in my soul where I never really felt accepted at all. I felt that if anyone ever really did know me, I would be rejected for sure. But uh, I, was, I was trying to fill a void that only God could fill. I, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. Am I answering your question? It is. I, I want to um, help those that are listening, sure. both parents and children, who are most likely hearing this that are struggling because they're different. They're feeling different. They may not have a sexual expression of that. It might come out in different ways. Um, you know, it doesn't always have to come out sexually. Well, sure. One of my main orientations was towards anger. Right. That sounds ridiculous mm. to people, but I would... I didn't understand my gifts. My parents didn't understand my gifts. And I would uh, resort to just blowing up in tantrums as a little boy. And you know what my mom would say to me? You come by that naturally. That's that's just your great-grandparents. That's the fiery redhead Bristol coming through in you. <laughs> so I, hmm. that communicated to me, I can't help it. This is just the way uh -huh. I am. 
Well, one of the first things that the Lord did after he set me free was begin dealing with my angry heart. He said, son, who told you that's who you are? I said, well, my mom. He said, but did I tell you I'm your maker? Oh, no, then show me. Mm -hmm. He said, that's not who I say you are. See that heart of peace I planted in you? I want you to be that because that's who you truly are. Hmm. Uh, I'm thinking about angry people and, and what is behind that anger. Did God reveal that to you? I yes. mean, what, what was that about? That I had a right to anything. <laughs> that sounds, again, oversimplifying of the situation, but I felt like I had a right to certain things. And the Lord said, son, really, because of your sin, if you got what you deserved, you'd be dead now. <laughs> That's true for all of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's my point. And he said, but you, son, you, this will rock some Christian's world, but you were worth me dying for. That's how much I wanted you. Hmm. I was worth his life. That's what has kept me seeking him all these years. I've been free for almost 35 years now. And nothing's changed as far as my seeking Jesus. In fact, if anything is true... I seek him more than I did the day he set me free. Dennis, it feels like uh, in your description, uh, life is like a freeway. Some people find the off-ramp to health and well-being through a relationship That's with good. Jesus. Some people pass right by mm -hmm. that, that escape. Why is that? Why, why is there such a rejection from wounded people to lean into God? Wounded people... One of two things they want to protect themselves. They don't want to be hurt anymore. So if they can devise a way to stop feeling that hurt, they put themselves in a box in a sense. When you put yourself in a box, you don't let anyone in and you, you don't let anything out that you don't approve of. And I call that a coffin. Mm -hmm. That's a place of death. Mm -hmm. The Dead Sea is dead, but it receives all the same water, all the same life as the Sea of Galilee, which is a living organism of a lake that flows down the Jordan River. Why is one living and one is dead, but they have the same water? Well, the Sea of Galilee, it receives water, but it gives water. It get, receives and gives. There's an ebb and a flow. The Dead Sea receives, 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 takes, 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 and releases nothing. Huh. It's a Dead Sea. That just dawned on me about 30 years ago that mm. I don't want to be the Dead Sea. So that means I've got to let people in. That means I've got huh. to be a living organism. That that means I've got to receive what I need from others. And I've also got to be a giver. Well, and what I hear in you is a man whose thirst has been quenched. Very much so. And that's but the, that makes me even more thirsty for Jesus. That's the point. But it doesn't <laughs> require you to keep thirsting for what the world was offering. Oh, not at all. In fact, if I even entertained for a brief moment a temptation it makes me sick mm. it really does because i realize oh my goodness what i've found in jesus is worth every struggle i've ever been through mm. it is it's worth every temptation worth every sorrow worth every bit of anguish or pain to know jesus intimately has been worth it all and i would only say to the person who's struggling in that area don't let us be the impediment Oh, yeah. And I mean the church. You <laughs> know, don't right. let a person's attitude that is hostile toward you be the impediment for you finding that well. Yeah. Um, that's not a good excuse, even though it's painful. And let me say to the church, the body of Christ out there, you don't have to have gone through anything to help somebody else out of it. You just have to be willing to walk towards Jesus with them. You're no one's savior. You're no one's redeemer. You're not responsible for the outcome of their life. Mm -hmm. But you are responsible to love them.
And love is means laying down your life. That's the greatest expression of love. Mm. Let's talk again, though. Let's finish the story sure. in terms of your journey and okay. how you as a child had these experiences. You're sexually active mm -hmm. as a young boy with other men, older boys, mm -hmm, you said. Mm -hmm. You're in a Christian home. Um, you're going to church every Sunday. Talk about how the Lord began to pull you in a different direction uh, in the midst of all that. How old were you when you had this awareness that maybe this isn't the way to go? Well, I have to say this before I get there. When I was 10 years old, by the time I was 10, I was already the church pianist at our church. I was very ingrained in church. Every so time you the had door talent. was open, I was there, yes. <laughs> Couldn't read a lick of music, but I had memorized the hymns. I could play by ear. One Sunday morning, I'm out playing with my brothers and cousins before I'm going to go up and play piano in the big church. And the men who have taught me about God since I'm a little boy, the men who I respected most, the men who are most like God to me, began discussing what they thought of homosexuals. My only conclusion after hearing the conversation was they hate me. They don't know it's me they hate, but I know. And if they hate mm -hmm. me, they know God. God hates me. So I, I went into this utter shell where I would not let anyone in. It was that coffin I talk about. And it was a place of death for me in so many ways. But my grandmother, Jernigan, was a very spiritual woman. She had a piano. And so after school, I was at her house after I did my chores. And I'd play the piano for hours. And she would tell me things of the Lord that really blew my mind as a little boy. But I, I told her I hate my gift. I, I get beat up at school for playing the piano. And she said, oh, that gift is from the Lord for use in his kingdom. I didn't have a clue as to what that meant. That was just crazy talk to me. But at the same time, it just drew me into an awareness that maybe God did have a plan for my life. I just I just didn't know how to figure that out. Did that ever give you, I'm just thinking about this, you, you may not have understood the comment, but in later years, did it give you perspective or strength to oh. say, okay, Grandma, now I get mm. it? Yes, very much so. In fact, after the Lord set me free, and then I'll get back to the crux of my story, uh, for several years after my initial freedom, I still battled thoughts of despair and depression and just all kinds of junk. And I, I thought, well, I'm a mighty man of God. That's how I choose to see myself. And uh, so, Lord, why am I still dealing with these things? And the Holy Spirit just said to me, well, son, what are you thinking about when those thoughts of depression come? I said, well, the time when I was five and that guy did what he did in that restroom. And my grandmother, when I was 13, she passed away. You took her out of my life. He said, son, make a list of all the times you feel like I've forsaken you, and I'll show you my perspective and show you where I was. One of the first things he did after I gave him that list, my list became four pages long, mm, y'all. Wow, think of that. And just because I wanted God to redeem even my memories. Because my perspective is one thing. God's perspective is the ultimate perspective. So yeah. that's where I wanted to get to. Mm. Two weeks later, after making that list, I go to my hometown where I grew up in northeastern Oklahoma and had a time of worship. After that worship time, this little gray-haired lady comes up to me and says, isn't it wonderful how your grandmother's prayers have been answered? I said, what? She said, you don't know? I said, no, please tell me. She said, remember when you were a little boy and you go to her house and play the piano? I said, yes, that's my most precious memories. But how do you know that? She said, did you not know that each day you'd come over there to play that piano? She would stand behind you and pray for you and ask the Lord to use you in the area of worship and music mm. for his kingdom and his glory. And I said, how do you know that? She said, because son, for for years, once a week at our women's prayer meeting, she would come to us and ask us to agree with her. And son, we still do. Praying for you. Praying for me at the 
at this moment, I'm 56 years old. Two of those women are still alive, still pray for me. My perspective was one thing. God's perspective was, you'll see your grandmother again, but I covered you with prayer. You thought I abandoned you. Quite the opposite, son. Quite the opposite was true. Like I said, my grandmother died when I was 13, and I went further into a shell, if that's possible. I get through high school. I'm valedictorian in my senior class, starting point guard on the basketball team. But the, the, the reality was that I was using it also as a, a smokescreen. People, again, they never ask questions of the good Jernigan boy. He does everything the coach says. The coach calls him the brains of the outfit. That was my position on the team. And then I decided I'm going to go to college and major in music and play basketball. I tried out for the Oklahoma Baptist University basketball team. They told me I could walk on the team. I made the team. And I'm going to major in music. Mm. I get to my first music lesson and realize, okay, I don't know anything. I thought I knew everything. I know nothing. It was like being set into a place where they only speak Russian, and I've never spoken a word of Russian in my life. To be a part of a music school, to be a music major in those days, you had to be a part of a choir. And to be a part of a choir, I had to audition. Well, my audition went something like this. Mr. Jernigan, would you take that choral octavo, go to the second page and to the third score, and would you read the alto line in your register? And you might as well have heard crickets chirping because I had no idea what they were even talking about. So I failed every audition, but never fear. They still wanted my money at Oklahoma Baptist University. (laughs) So they had created a special choir called the Shawnee Choral Society, lamest name ever. I called it the Island of Misfit Toys. That was the name I gave to that choir. In addition, I wanted to major in songwriting. I knew that I could do that. So I went to the head of the theory and composition department, said I want to declare my major as a freshman. And they sat me down and said this, we only have a few openings and we reserve them for people we see potential in it. And just quite honestly, we don't see that potential in you. And that crushed me. Mm. So uh, long story made short, through that process, uh, I really bore down on my studies. I quit the basketball team and just worked on my music. And for the next four years, that's that was my life, just diving into learning all I could about music. During my freshman year, a man named Keith Green came to our campus, and that dude scared me to death. Why? Because he, you were with him five minutes, and you knew you needed Jesus. But then he did another thing as he began to sing, because I'm thinking, first of all, the dude looks like John the Baptist, and Mm. I'm thinking he's come back. (laughs) Yeah, for for folks that don't remember, he was a fairly bushy-haired, wild-looking guy. Wild guy. Very expressive. But the most profound thing he did was he began to sing, Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. And it was like hearing two intimate friends in the most intimate of conversations, and I'm wondering, should I even be listening to this? But Mm. the effect was it drew me right into an awareness, God is here. And I did not know how to deal with that. That same year, somebody handed me a record album by the band, Second Chapter of Acts. And Annie Herring had a messed up life before she met Jesus. And I won't go into her story. But I thought if he could love her, he could love me. She had a song on this record. And a record for you young whippersnappers out there is like a giant CD. <laughs> but it's cooler. You can play it on both sides. Um, but they handed me this, this friends handed me this record by this Christian band. I said, hippie music? You want me to listen to hippies? And they said, oh, they helped usher in the Jesus movement. Uh, that's for another story, but I never had heard of the Jesus movement. And so I was being overwhelmed by these Christian things that were going on around my life. And, but it made me intrigued to listen to her music. 
And when she had a particular song with these lyrics, he took away my sin and shame. He took away my sin and shame. He loves me. He loves me. Hallelujah. And listening to that song, she was screaming it. And I thought, how can you believe that? You were more messed up than me. (laughs) But for the next four years, the music of Keith Green and Annie Herring kept me from taking my life. Fall of 1980, I'm a senior at Oklahoma Baptist University. I'm more desperate than ever because I can't keep the plates all spinning as you would in those old vaudeville plays where they'd spin the plates and I just didn't see how I was going to keep it up. And something had to give. So I'm walking across campus one day and I hear my name and I turn around and it's a Christian leader in the community, husband, father, well-respected. I'm a worthless worm of a nobody. How does he even know who I am? He said, I've been watching you around campus and... I believe the Lord wants me to, to just help you. Uh, I said, what? He said, how are your studies going? How can I pray for you? Nobody had ever taken that kind of interest in my life. And I just began to feel valued. Every week he would call me and just pray with me. Well, and then, kind of a father figure. Exactly. And yeah. he would take me out for coffee and, or a Coke and just study, help me with my studies and pray for me. And it was an amazing thing. And so there came a point where in my desperation, I went to him and I said, listen, there's something that I've been carrying my whole life and it's all I've ever known. And I'm tired of it, but I, I can't fix myself. I've tried and God's doing nothing. I don't know what to do. Will you help me? And he said, yeah, just tell me. I said, well, are you going to love me? Cause it's pretty bad. He said, there's nothing you can tell me that would keep me from loving you. So I told him, and for the first time in my life, it felt like the absolute weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. Uh. That feeling lasted just a, a brief moment because then he made a sexual advance on me. Oh, my goodness. when I had trusted. And I felt so humiliated, betrayed. Now, I thought I knew what hopeless felt like. But in that moment, I really did because I thought this is one I thought God had sent to help me, and they just... They've been setting me up to use me. Dennis, people are hearing this, and uh, it may be that same issue of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. It could be other issues. Uh, We're wrapping up today, and I want to come back next time and delve into God's relationship with you, how you began to move on the right track, you might say. But speak to the person right now who is hearing this, their jaws dropping, because you're speaking right to where they're Mm. at today. Mm. And we're leaving at a point where we haven't talked about hope, and I don't want people to stay there. Just talk for a minute about hope and what hope meant to you, and we'll come back next time and fill in that discussion. I don't care how far you think you've fallen away from the Lord or away from hope, away from stability. Uh, Let me give you a, a good word here. If you're breathing, there is hope, and God can reach as far as you can fall. Trust me on that. If he can reach me, he can reach anyone. And he loves you right where you are. He really does. But I have great news for you. He loves you enough to not leave you there. So Uh give him a chance. Dennis Jernigan, songwriter, worship leader, musician, um, really honest, extraordinary human being. Let's come back next time and fill in these blanks for people. Sure. Can you do that? I'd love to. Well, we've heard some very tender uh, recollections and painful memories that Dennis had. And if you're at a point where you just feel like there's no hope, then please uh, reach out to a pastor or a trusted Christian friend. Uh, seek out a Christian counselor. 
Look for help. You're not alone, and uh, God will place the right people to help you as you reach out to him. Our program was provided by Focus on the Family. And on behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening in. I'm John Fuller. If you're breathing, there is hope. Give God a chance. Such good advice from Dennis Jernigan. And I encourage you to join us again next time for the conclusion of this message. If you missed any part of today's message, you can listen again on our website or right from the Focus Africa app. And in fact, on the app, you'll see that we've created a top 50 broadcast channel. It's our best of the best from the last year. And today's program is one of those. And if you're struggling, maybe with your own identity or maybe something else, don't hesitate. Get in touch with us. That's why we're here. We have a great team of counselors and we have a range of ways that you can connect. You can give us a call on 031-716-3300 or connect with our counseling team through the counseling page on our website at safamily.co.za. The book that comes highly recommended with today's broadcast is called Out of a Far Country by Christopher and Angela Yuan. Ask for that when you call us or you'll find it on our website at safamily.co.za. I'm Alison Schnell, inviting you back next time when we'll once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.